Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. Hey, it's Michael Loenger. You're listening to the OTM Podcast Extra. This week, we're re-airing an interview I did about the best, the worst, the silliest, the dumbest, the most entertaining website on the internet. Jolly bit me. Hey, everyone. This is Kenji Lopez-Alta. I'm here at home. Today, I'm going to show you how to make probably the easiest pasta dish around, um, cacio e pepe. It's kind of like Italian. This is how I start my makeup routine. Sometimes I pluck my eyebrows. I pick up my skin first. I don't know why I do that, but we're going to skip that part and just go right into my I was hitting some nasty shots. Did you see that? Serious video today. I was a loser. You know, I was that kid that sat at the table with three other people that were also like the super rejects. That was me. I got 100 of my subscribers and gave them each $10,000. And I also rented one of the largest malls in the world and locked them inside. These are facts. And facts don't care about your feelings. Yeah, there was a survey that went out recently that it's like... More kids want to be professional YouTubers than astronauts. And everyone, like, even I'm like, man, that's so lame. But then I was like, hold up. I quit my dream job at NASA to make YouTube videos, so I'm not really one to judge. Today, YouTube is one of the biggest media companies in the world. In 2020, we uploaded 500 hours of footage to the site every minute. And on average, we watched over 5 billion videos every day. It's a broadcasting machine so complex, it would make Marshall McLuhan's head explode. I've been obsessed with YouTube since I was 13, which is why I was psyched to speak with journalist Mark Bergen and read his new book, Like, Comment, Subscribe, Inside YouTube's Chaotic Rise to World Domination. According to Bergen, the founders of the site originally envisioned something more akin to Tinder than homemade TV. And so they thought that maybe dating would be the way in. They thought sex appeal was the only reason regular people would want to upload videos of themselves to YouTube. They posted on Craigslist offering $20 to women who would vlog on their site. Google was launching at the same time, Google Video. And one of the major reasons that it lost to YouTube is because Google just didn't think that people would want to watch non-professionals. Google bought the site for $1.6 billion in the fall of 2006, right around when the first wave of YouTubers began reaching thousands of subscribers through their webcams. Early stars that Bergen spoke to pointed to the same piece of inspiration. Lazy Sunday, the SNL digital short featuring Andy Samberg and Chris Parnell. Lazy Sunday, wake up in the late afternoon. Call Parnell just to see how he's doing. Hello, what up, Paul? It had this lo-fi quality. A lot of early YouTubers didn't have a lot of camera equipment or green screens, things to compete with big media. There was also Smosh, a channel I watched a lot when I was in middle school. Two guys named Anthony and Ian who acted out ironically bad skits. You're going to do so well on your driving test, Anthony. I just know it. Now give mommy a kiss. (laughs) Mom, no. 
The most subscribed channel for a while was run by this guy, Ray William Johnson, who curated viral videos with edgy commentary. You know, the laws of the internet say that when you film yourself doing something even somewhat dangerous, you're supposed to fail so we can all laugh at you. And then there were the Vlog Brothers, featuring Hank Green, a charmingly dorky science teacher, and his brother John Green, who is now known as a best-selling YA author. Hello, John. By now you will have received my message that we will no longer be communicating through any textual means. No more instant messaging, no more emailing, only video blogging. That was a new form of entertainment that these trailblazers were inventing. But at the end of the day, many of them were just hobbyists. That changed in 2007, when people like Hank Green from the Vlogbrothers started getting emails from new sites saying stuff like, we'll pay you to leave YouTube and join us. I remember reading these emails and being like, whoa, you mean that I could potentially be getting paid for this? Green discussed this moment in a recent video. YouTube saw this as a tremendous threat, I think correctly, and they created the YouTube Partner Program. The one decision in the history of online media that has changed things more than anything else. Every advertisement that runs on a video on a creator's page, 55% is gonna go to the creator. In 2020, YouTube made around $20 billion. 10 billion of those dollars went to creators. YouTube was extremely early in the creator economy in this profession that didn't exist before. At the same time, YouTube was came really late to the ideas of what they kind of called user-generated content would actually be commercially successful. So for the first several years of the company, they actually went out and tried to recruit Shaquille O'Neal, Madonna, Tony Hawk, these like well-known celebrities, and basically tried to turn A-listers into YouTubers. And I think there's always been this discrepancy between what people inside the company hope and wish for the platform to be and what it really is. One conversation around YouTube that I don't feel has really caught up to where it needs to be is like around kids content. The platform radically altered how kids watch and what they watch. Because of the Children's Online Privacy Act, they didn't want to reach viewers under 13. And so they built this app, YouTube Kids, designed to be like this playground for kids under 13. This was a discrete app that was kind of like right. a walled off version of the site. <laughs> Or at least that's how it was marketed. Right. A lot of parents assumed that meant that they were curating the videos, and they weren't. Children were watching unsupervised on the main app. People were going to YouTube and searching for Frozen. They were searching for Spider-Man. They were searching for Elsa. And so you had a lot of creators just rushing to make content related to these popular trends. And then there were a lot of channels that started to take it into very strange directions, either live action or animation, and like put Elsa and Spider-Man in sexual situations. Elsa Gate was a name for after that. YouTube in the fall of 2017 took a pretty extreme action and just like deleted thousands of channels and videos. I almost feel like the problem is more pernicious and more subtle than disturbing, violent videos that your kid may or may not ever see. YouTube heavily rewards a certain kind of kids' content. If you pull up socialblade.com or one of these sites that mm -hmm. ranks YouTubers, if you get on that list, the largest American channel by subscriber count is Cocomelon. A nursery rhymes channel. Shoes, shoes, it's time to wear your shoes. If you keep going down that list, there are tons of other kids' channels. Like Nastia. Hi, Nastia. I'm ready for a sleepover. Kids Diana Show. Yay! 
Vlad and Nikki. Oh, yeah. Some of the biggest channels on YouTube, period, are kids' channels. That's totally right. They built the world's biggest kids' entertainment service, really, without trying, without acknowledging it for a long time. I mean, one thing that's important to remember is that American television does have rules and regulation around kids' content, right? There's a certain amount of educational programming that has to happen. You can't have promotional materials inside the programs. You have to make it very evident and clear when it's a commercial and when it's not. None of that exists on YouTube. And, you know, there have been criticisms of some of the most popular channels on YouTube that they are effectively running 15, 20 minute long commercials. This video features Ryan's World Toys that Ryan helped create. This is Ryan's robot. Well, you can move all the joints. So that's really cool. YouTube Kids has changed pretty dramatically because they were regulated from the Federal Trade Commission in 2019. They were fined $170 million. The largest fine ever, and that was for violating uh, COPPA. That's the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. You listed off a lot of those popular channels. I think the major point is they're very understudied and underscrutinized. Like, I've struggled to find researchers who spend their time with, like, childhood development and psychology expertise that, like, watch a lot of these popular YouTubers and unpack really what's happening in the videos. And I think that's something that really needs to change since there's an entire generation that's being raised not on television but on YouTube. In his book, Mark Bergen writes about this phrase that was often repeated inside the company. Joke, threat, obvious. Which explains the three phases of growth in a successful startup. Early on, YouTube was perceived as a joke. People in the press and in Silicon Valley would refer to it as the site where people go to watch videos of dogs skateboarding or whatever. Nowadays, skipping ahead, YouTube is obvious. It's obviously the place where long-form video lives. But in that middle phase, YouTube was considered a threat to so many different kinds of people. Copyright holders, it was sued by Viacom for a billion dollars. It was a threat to parents, as we've discussed, a threat to advertisers, which we'll get to in a minute, and a threat to the news media. Bergen describes the moment that TV news realized that YouTube could deliver something it couldn't. What he describes as YouTube's Edward R. Murrow moment. Television wasn't really considered like a serious medium until Murrow started to show this like very visceral footage of the Korean War. This is Korea. This is the front. Just there, no man's land begins. And on the ridges over there, the enemy positions can be clearly seen. YouTube and social media had that same effect. During the Iranian Revolution in 2009, people were taking like grainy cell phone footage of the protests in Iran, and it was coming out on YouTube, not on cable TV. And you mentioned this moment of a CNN producer calling YouTube and asking like how they'd gotten all this footage from Iran. Right. So much of YouTube's expansion globally in their first few years was fighting to stay alive. Thailand, Turkey, Pakistan threatened or, or at times blacked out YouTube. And the company back then had a much more aggressive stance on like opposing the demands of government, even from the U.S. government. YouTube was confronted with a responsibility that it seems like it maybe never meant to have, which is deciding which kinds of speech should be kept up. You wrote about this meeting in 2016 where YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki was bombarded with complaints from female creators on the platform 
about the amount of harassment they received in the comment section, which we all know can be a special pit of hell, and also harassment from other YouTubers. In 2019, the company rolled out stricter moderation policies aimed at reducing this type of misogyny. But even this month, the Center for Countering Digital Hate, a British nonprofit, found that harassment against women on the platform is still pretty rampant. And what was really interesting about that harassment policy is like they kind of initially wrote in this loophole and we can allow criticism and potentially offensive things being said about public figures. But then, you know, YouTube as a platform was invented to like turn anyone into a public figure. Anyone who turns the camera on themselves is a public yeah, figure. That's right. They have an exemption for satire, but then in their rule book, you can't after the post is gone up and say, oh, I was just joking, which has happened all the time. And, and like YouTube has struggled with this in their defense. Like it is a very hard problem to identify what's satire and what's bullying. I'm not excusing them. Like this is a problem that they created and probably a very foreseeable one. The company has had evolving policies around removing content that has extreme violence, depict hate groups, terrorist recruitment videos. But you describe moments where it felt like enforcement was a bit ad hoc. A critical turning point was ISIS. And so 2014, ISIS was posting a lot of propaganda and extremely violent beheading videos on YouTube. And particularly in Europe, Google was just berated for hosting and propagating ISIS propaganda. And so the company in 2017 decided, okay, we're not going to just remove these videos, but we're going to remove the rhetoric behind this and basically remove the ideology. And they took a very strict and strong stance against Islamist terror and ISIS. My reportings show that there were people inside YouTube that thought, basically, we're only applying this to one particular radical group. We're not applying the same tools and policies against, in particular, white nationalists and white supremacists. This is such a classic dynamic in American politics where no one bats an eye at censoring Islamist extremism. But when it comes to, like, our American brand of extremism, it's so much more fraught. YouTube will say that, listen, we're following governments here. Like they look to the UK and US terrorist registries and it's easier. There are actual lists that YouTube follows. This month in September, YouTube announced that they're finally going to start expanding their definition of violent extremism beyond terrorist registries. The company's reluctance at times to play speech police came to a head with a giant controversy that we now call today the adpocalypse. It started when journalists in the UK and the US began to document instances in which YouTube's automated ad system had placed commercials on extremist content. For instance, a Wall Street Journal reporter found a Crest advertisement on a video titled A 6,000-Year History of the Jew World Order. In effect, Crest was paying the YouTube channel that uploaded that video. Naturally, a lot of companies freaked out. Major brands like Pepsi, Starbucks, and Walmart. Uh, Verizon, Johnson & Johnson, these big companies, they've just found out that their ads are being played before some pretty offensive content, and they want it to stop. The brand said, we're not advertising on YouTube until you fix this, and eventually they did. But the boycott caused two things to happen. 
YouTube started aggressively demonetizing all kinds of videos, in some cases taking ads off of high-quality videos that didn't appear to have anything explicit in them. And two, it caused revenue for many creators to plunge. The ad-pocalypse. There's not enough ads to go around on YouTube for everybody. Many of my videos are making like 20% of what they were just one week ago. This event changed the landscape of YouTube, and every creator to this day still feels the backlash. This triggered a massive crisis of faith. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, it, it was a year later that there was a troubled YouTuber came in with a gun and shot their campus because of the policies. So, like, it had real ramifications that, like, hit home. It's become a little bit more stable for the top tier of YouTube creators. But there are a lot of creators who aren't in that category. They have no guarantee that tomorrow they'll be making the same amount of money or any money at all. Toward the end of your book, you pose this question that had been articulated inside the company. Which YouTube? Or maybe put another way, whose YouTube? Meaning, like, what version of this site do we want to make? What do you think is so important about that question? For one, it speaks to this interesting tension inside the company between what it sees itself and how it actually is. I think it's a bigger question of, like, what do we want from this very powerful media platform? One executive at YouTube kind of talks about how it, they accidentally built this repository for like human memory, like a human brain. Whose brain and whose collective memory are we uploading into this, right? It's not a reflective of all of us. Yeah. Is it a brain? Is it our memory? I almost feel like it's something entirely different. It might shape our behavior, but to see it as a one-to-one library, I feel like that's almost kind of dishonest. And in fact, in the conclusion of your book, you quote one longtime YouTube executive who's responding to like the constant barrage of criticism. This person says, don't blame the mirror. And I'm like, is YouTube a mirror? Do you think it's a mirror? No, I don't think so. I mean, like in the simple version, if it was a mirror, it'd have a lot more porn. You know, like it doesn't reflect all of humanity. And we can be thankful in some ways. It's no longer a mere to health information. There are certain types of health videos that are no longer allowed on the site. And that's probably good for public health reasons during the pandemic. It is no longer a mirror of all the spectrum of ideology in the world. And like, do we want a $30 billion advertising business to be running white supremacy? There's an expression inside YouTube, the audience is king, and that gives them this idea that you know the algorithm and what's watched and popular is is us. We're the ones dictating the direction to go. And I think that's partially true, but I actually think, as my book shows, the company plays a very significant role in, in not just what we watch, but what's actually made. Mark, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a great combo. Mark Bergen is a reporter at Bloomberg and the author of Like, Comment, Subscribe, Inside YouTube's Chaotic Rise to World Domination. YouTube may not be a mirror, but when I look at it, I do see something grim staring back at me. And it's not my made-for-radio face. It's an attention economy that's grown to an incomprehensible scale while journalism is faltering. I see videos of a teenage gamer in his bedroom reaching more viewers than a deeply reported article in the New York Times. And I'm not complaining about that. My industry could learn from YouTube how to build broader communities for what we provide. We once treated it as a joke, and still treat it as a threat. Maybe it's time to embrace the obvious. 
Thanks for listening to our midweek podcast. On the big show this weekend, Brooke is talking about disasters from Turkey to Syria to Ohio. As always, the episode will be available in your podcast feed on Friday. See you then.